This is Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, editor of Tradition, with a new episode of the Tradition Podcast. The late and lamented Rabbi Jonathan Sachs was a frequent critic of the emergence of a post-truth culture and a lifelong opponent of moral relativism. Yet, in his book, The Dignity of Difference, How to Avoid the Clash of Civilizations, he was an ardent proponent of a form of religious pluralism. When first published over 20 years ago, his position was both attacked and misunderstood, giving rise to questions about how his orthodoxy and his devotion to objective truth were able to sit alongside his advocacy for a form of religious pluralism. Sam Liebens explored these questions in an essay for our spring 2022 issue, titled One God, One Truth, Many Languages, Rabbi Sachs's Pluralism, Reexamined. Visit traditiononline.org for open access to that piece. In this podcast, my colleague, Dr. Erica Brown, a consulting editor here at Tradition, talks to Liebens about these topics in Rabbi Sachs's thought and about his own recent essay. Rabbi Samuel Liebens is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Haifa and the author of, most recently, The Principles of Judaism, published by Oxford University Press which investigates the axioms of Jewish faith through the lens of contemporary analytic philosophy. Dr. Erica Brown serves as the Vice Provost and Inaugural Director of the Sachs-Herrenstein Center for Values and Leadership at Yeshiva University. I am here with Professor Sam Liebens. It's a delight to have you here in Tradition Online. Um, you wrote a marvelous piece on in Traditions Spring 2022 uh, um, volume, and want to talk about that article. But first, Professor Liebens, I'm going to call you Sam. Is that all right? Yes, Can please I'm do. Gonna... Please do. Okay. And, and, and I, I may call you Erica along the way. I hope you'll call me Erica, as I say, Dr. <laughs> Brown is a soda. So, uh, <laughs> oh, is that right? Yes. I'd much prefer. I don't. I don't. I'm not sure that you get that back home. But uh, no, we get Dr. Pepper, but not Dr. Brown. Dr. Brown, yeah. yeah. Um, so um, actually, why don't we start off, Sam, by telling us where you're Zooming from? Right. I am currently, and I, I hope there's not going to be too much noise in the background. I'm, I'm in the, the midst of, of Rutgers University in New Jersey. I'm in the philosophy department there. Is there a lot of noise in the philosophy department? Oh, we think very loudly. <laughs> yeah, it's just like the, cog, it's the cogs whirling. Right, the cogs whirling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not a resident of New Jersey. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an assistant professor at University of Haifa, but I'm here for a conference on uh, space, time and theology. Mm. That's why I'm here. That sounds quite ethereal. Yeah, it is very ethereal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, I don't know if it's evident to our audience that you're English and I'm not. Um, I, I, I think you speak it, very, you speak a very good English. Though. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, I, 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 I obviously, you know, you, you wrote a, you wrote a piece, um, about Rabbi Sachs. Yeah. One God, one truth, many languages, Rabbi Sachs's pluralism reexamined. Um, are you writing this, um, in some way, not only from an intellectual or spiritual perspective, but also as someone for whom, someone you had a relationship with. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, um, you know, first of all, I'm a religiously observant, orthodox Jewish philosopher from England who, who grew up, you know, came of age 
you know, in the 90s and early 2000s. And, and uh, it's simply not possible to fall into that category, really, and not, not to have been um, hugely uh, influenced by, by Rabbi Sachs, who, who was the dogma, uh, the, the living example of, for, for especially, you know, for British Jewry, but for, glo but, but for global Jewry, I'm sure, but, you know, uh, as he was the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom as I was growing up, um, he, was, he was the role model of what it meant to be an open-minded, uh, uh, um, unapologetically religious, you know, uh, uh, spiritual intellectual. So, so that, that's even before a relationship begins. He just served that role in my life as a, as a, uh, as, as a living example. And, and, and even, even as he's passed away, he's, he's, uh, he he continues to he continues to function in my life as a as as a, a, as an example as a, as a paradigm example, somebody that that one can aspire to to uh, to model oneself oneself upon. Um, but we also had he, he was a mentor to me as well. I mean, um, in what you, capacity, Sam? Well, you probably know he was very he was he was ridiculously busy. He he didn't waste much time, <laughs> and you know, and he, his his schedule seemed to have been agreed upon, you know, years in advance, if not months in advance. You know, it was hard to kind of grab him uh, uh, to to get time with him. But he was he was extraordinarily generous in that in that during my teenage years, uh, I would sometimes write him uh, angst filled emails uh, mm. from from the midst of kind of uh, you know adolescent uh, um, crises and um, and he would he would and that he would invariably respond and uh, that that's how our relationship really began as, as correspondence email correspondence that's a um, beautiful thing that he took the yeah, time it was um, a wonderful yeah, I mean, I, I had the good uh, the great good fortune of being his student I'm a little yeah. older than you and yeah. um, before his, I mean, his schedule was busy, but it wasn't, uh, it, it was unscalable as it was, yeah. as, as, as his influence spread. Um, what made you write to him? Well, um, without going in, without going into too many of the, the personal details, the, 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 Those are the best ones, Sam. I know they're the best ones. <laughs> that I, I'm British. We don't do personal details. We yes. we kind of repress privacy, them. Privacy, yeah, privacy. Yeah. But but uh, in the, the the broad scale story is that I, I was in yeshiva. Uh, I didn't grow up particularly religiously observant. I grew up in a in a you know a, a very good and and traditional Jewish home, but not particularly religiously observant. I became more observant on my own. I I ended up in in yeshiva. And, and actually it was at, it was very much at the time of the controversy around the dignity of difference, uh, the book that, that Rabbi Sachs wrote about interreligious relations and, and in a sense, religious pluralism. Um, and he was being lambasted by, by, at that point, what you might call the theological right of orthodoxy, um, as a heretic, the book was the book was put in cheren. The book was uh, excommunicated, and um, I was in yeshiva, as I said, and I admired him tremendously. He was my role model, and yet I was hearing voices in my yeshiva, even 
who were very vocally opposed to, to Rabbi Sachs. And I found that very, very difficult. And mm. I felt kind of intellectually, I could, there were certain yeshivot that I couldn't have gone to because I didn't have the skills in Talmud learning. Um, so the yeshiva I was in didn't necessarily reflect my ideology or an ideology I would one day aspire to espouse, but, but it, was a, it was a yeshiva that could cater for me educationally, pedagogically, given, given a, a, I suppose, a, a lack of previous Jewish education. And, um, and I, I, felt, I just felt terribly conflicted because I had Rabbi Sachs on the one hand, who was my role model and, and you know, even though I didn't know him yet personally. And I had all these voices that seemed so close-minded and I already knew I was going to go to study philosophy at university. And there were ra rabbis in the yeshiva who were very opposed to my studying philosophy because they came from a different, you know, a different type of orthodoxy that doesn't value um, um, deep engagement with secular wisdom. Or if they do, they, they at the very least, ha have a concern, a legitimate concern, perhaps, that that um, if someone isn't prepared yet for the exposure to those things, they may be led astray. And I was even feeling, to a certain extent, bullied on, a, on an individual level uh, by, by- You, were you, Sam, um, I take it you were probably 17 or 18 at this time? 18. 18. 18. So were you, were, were people actually actively speaking and trying to dissuade you? And- Yes, you yes. coming up with your sort of defensive posture of how to protect your academic integrity is that that's absolutely that's absolutely right but it was but it was but I was too immature I think to um to, to do that without um feeling terribly hurt by by people who who I admired and looked up to you know somebody threw Rabbi Sachs's books onto the floor of the Bet Midrash you know a rabbinic figure did that and um yeah wow. and and wow. somebody also came to visit me. Like I was a studious yeshiva, but I, I, you know, I was really quite prim. I, I, I hope I still am, um, you know, but, but uh, and I was, I was very studious. I was in the Bet Midrash really trying to grow. Somebody came to visit me in my room when I wasn't well. Uh, they were doing Bikur Cholim, which is a very nice thing. And they saw that I had on my bookshelf a volume by Voltaire. Mm. In my, my bedroom bookshelf, not in the Bet Midrash. I wouldn't take it right. the Bet Midrash. And he, this rabbi was going to throw it out the window. <laughs> it is private property. I'm it just is. saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so. Yeah. What a so, dis I mean, what, you know, when you talk about cognitive dissonance, you know, yeah. um, that's. And I wrote to Rabbi Sachs at that time and I asked him, I told him I had a, I had a fabulous Talmud teacher in this yeshiva, but I was feeling bullied and I was feeling um, dismayed by the way he was being treated, his name was being treated. And in his characteristic manner, because nobody ever heard him speak downwards towards his detractors or speak dismissively towards his detractors, he encouraged me to remain in Yeshiva, despite knowing what people were saying about him, because he said that um, having a teacher that I love teaching me Talmud is a, is a, you know, a rare opportunity before going to university and I should finish out the, it was the set, it was actually my second year. I should finish out my second year of studies. And, and, um, 
he, he, wrote, he wrote with such compassion for my situation. He didn't know me from Adam yet. And um, I think from then onwards, he took a very active interest in my welfare. Do you think that he saw in you a younger version of himself? I, Is that fair to say? Uh, he, he also had um, not grown up in a religiously traditional home, per se. Um, yeah. He also sort of, as an autodidact and studying under Rabbi Nachum Rabinovich and others, tried to make up for the years lost yes. in some textual study. Yes, and, yes. Uh, yes. I, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think he, that, that background gave him a deep appreciation of how rare an opportunity it can be for somebody from, from these sorts of educational backgrounds to find a Talmud teacher who can really bring Talmud to life and give you those textual skills. Um, um, and certainly, you know, um, there's a very small number of religiously observant um, philosophy graduates, you know, and he kept his eye on those people. He did. Yeah, yeah that's uh, it's special to have that. You know, to have someone yeah. who of his stature who took a personal interest. I um, I was running the Sixth Form Center when I lived in the UK. Yeah, and he was the principal at um, at Juice College, Just and a, yeah. he took an active interest in a number of uh, of teenagers. And was if if yeah. if someone had a a conflict, and I uh, yeah. I advised them to speak to Rabbi Sachs. Rabbi Sachs. Took yeah. took him seriously. I think he had an investment in um, in in the youth of the community, and just so that they were they were the future. So, let's talk about this essay. Um, yes, I want to talk about what inspired you to write this essay. Mm -hmm. I, I think for our listening audience, what who may not have yet read it, but they will certainly read it soon. Sorry. It's available in traditiononline.org in the. 2022 spring volume. Um, it's a lengthy essay. It's a beautiful mm -hmm. essay. It's a lengthy essay, a very provocative essay. What inspired you to write it? What's the central thesis? And what's the reaction been to it? So those are three questions in one. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so what inspired me to write it was, I mean, the, 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 the tragic, very sudden, really, and untimely passing of of Rabbi Sachs, I think occasioned a lot of us, people who, who had meaningful relationships with him, to return to his, to his words just for comfort. Um, and so I, very much so, yeah. Yeah. So I've been reading, you know, more, more, more intensely Rabbi Sachs since, since he passed away than I had been beforehand. Because me too, me I too. feel, yeah, I just feel I need, I need it. It's a way of connecting to him is to connect Absolutely. to his writings and uh, that's what you hold on to. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's, and it's a tremendous comfort that he's left us that. Um, so, so turning to his writings, um, inevitably I, I, I ended up reading, I, I actually joined a group of scholars and we've been reading uh, each of Rabbi Sachs's books in, in the order of their publication. So inevitably we got round to, um, we got round to the dignity of difference. Um, and I, you know, you would have gathered from the story I told you that I was already, in a sense, defensive of Rabbi Sachs in the sense that I felt that the, the right of orthodoxy had mistreated him in, in this, on this occasion. But I had also noticed, um, you know, Rabbi Sachs was not a person who was easy to pigeonhole. 
he didn't like a lot of labels like modern orthodox he did you know he he he, he eschewed labels and um on some issues he was really very conservative with us with a small c right um and sometimes his more liberal students reacted negatively to that right because he would he you know and they would say things oh he's kowtowing to his his bet din and he's kowtowing to the right when when very often it was the case that actually he he was just more conservative than they realized he was you know right. on a number of on a number of issues um and i have seen his name being associated by certain scholars some of whom i think are are, are, are very uh, sincere and well meaning some of whom i think just well i i don't know um it's not for me to judge but I, I've seen his name associated with postmodernism. This idea, well, Rabbi Sachs wrote this book, The Dignity of Difference, and doesn't it say, you know, all religions are true? So that, you know, he, he's a postmodernist where truth is just about narrative and is your narrative and our narrative. There's no objectivity, you know. And, and I felt, as I was rereading The Dignity of Difference, I felt this kind of twin impulse to, to kind of defend Rabbi Sachs and those detractors on the right. Who, who accused him of heresy for this book, uh, and, and also to, de to defend his name, I think, or his legacy against those who, in my opinion, would misappropriate it by, mm. by painting him as a, as a, a radical pluralist. Yeah, so I that, that... co-opting his name and attaching it to your particular agenda, whether it's an identity politics issue, whether it's um, you know, the, the, the post-truth issue, um, you know, it, it's it's interesting. You sort of took it from both ends. Um, yeah. I, I I wanted to read what you talk about as two um, conflicting, seemingly contradictory mm -hmm. approaches in his work. Uh, yeah. One is the what you call the adamant opposition to relativism, postmodernism, yeah. and any form of attack on the hard and fast dichotomy between truth and falsehood. Yeah. Um, and the second is his particular brand of religious pluralism, yeah. which you sourced in his book, Dignity of Difference, mm -hmm. which is rooted in a denial of objectivity and a collapsing or, of the- Or it looks like it is. Or it yeah. looks like it, the collapsing yeah. of the dichotomy <laughs> of truth, truth and falsehood. And yeah. um, I mean, this, this came up in many of his books, uh, but in, in specific, you quoted 2017 piece that he did on post-truth and the erosion of trust. Yeah. where he wrote, there's no secure way of establishing and checking the facts. We know that on the web, lies go, can go viral, whereas the corrections very rarely do. Or as they say, a lie can travel around the world before truth has had time to put its shoes on. Um, and um, in this world of truthiness, um, yeah. where facts are, we question what a fact is. I mean, yes. who might have thought you know, we, we, we get to this place. Um, so help us reconcile these two strains in yeah. his thinking. Yeah. So that's, the, that's exactly the objective of, of, of this paper is to, is to make sense of his religious pluralism without undermining all these other places. You, 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 you read the place I quote uh, um, this, this kind of video essay really about, about um, post-truth, um, but, but it's, it's a theme right throughout his writings that predates the dignity of difference. You can see it in tradition and the untraditional age, covenant crisis, all these different books. And you see it post dignity of difference. Rabbi Sachs was something of a crusader against postmodernism, post-truth, you know, but before it was fashionable to be, he, 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 he was. 
but on the other hand, he, he has this religious pluralism, which sometimes looks in its most extreme forms, it looks like, you know, it's inconsistent with uh, holding on to a hard and fast distinction between truth and falsehood. So the, 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 the challenge of the paper is to reconcile these two aspects of Rabbi Sachs's work. And I think it can be done. I actually think, and I think this may be controversial uh, among admirers of Rabbi Sachs, is I think he was right to publish a second edition. Controversially, mm -hmm. controversially, I think that if you really understand his perspective on these issues, taking a broad reading of all of his works from before Dignity Difference right to the end of his, of his, of his life, um, you can see that the second edition is a more cl clearly accurate account of his view, less prone to misinterpretation mm. than was the first edition. And at the time when he brought out that second edition, I was so angry because mm. I felt like, Rabbi Sachs, you've got to sock it to those people attacking yeah. you. And he was a humble man. And, and he said, okay, I've been misunderstood. I'll go back to these sentences he didn't retract them he said in the preface to the book i'm not retracting what i said but i recognize that what i said may have been open to misconstrual or misinterpretation i'll say it clearer and i think well, he was well, right. i mean there there's the um there's the teacher in him yes. right he's trying to yes. say it wasn't this wasn't about a fight and often the perception for those who are not uh maybe not as au fait as you might say in in, in what happened in that time period yeah um this wasn't really kowtowing to no. the right elements of the right because the chief ravenet was not also didn't actually have authority over that community either no, no. Um, it was perhaps perhaps understanding that readers that he did care deeply about yeah may have been misled by yeah. his writing yeah and teacher in him i think uh, again this is all speculative right. But the That's teacher right. him said, I have an opportunity to articulate this in a way that will be more fully understood and more accurately representative yeah. of the way in which I think, because, you know, as we know, and, and I think Twitter had not been around uh, right. when Dignity of Difference was uh, first published or its second edition. I have a first edition copy, so um, that's one of my most valuable possessions. <laughs> it's a, the first edition signed copy of Rabbi Sachs's Dignity of Difference. Um, and I, I, I wasn't quite as vehement, but I, I appreciate yeah. your vehemence about this. Mm. And then sort of softening over time and realizing yeah. from an educational pedagogical mm. standpoint, a person says, looks back at his work, with a truth and a clarity and says, I want to make sure people understand me. And I think that's what you were trying to accomplish, if I'm not mistaken, in this article. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think if you if you don't care about truth, if you live in this kind of post-truth world and someone says something against you, you just say what you said before, but you say it louder. Mm. <laughs> right. Right. But if you, yeah. you know, but if you care about well, truth, or you put the other side on the defensive, yeah, you oh. accuse them of something, you know, some ism. Right. Uh, uh, but but Rabbi Sachs was no, I care about truth, and therefore if I if if I have if my words have led people to misunderstand my actual position, I'll listen to them and rearticulate. So oh. so that so that's the, the the purpose of of the paper, and 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 as I understand Rabbi Sachs's pluralism, I, I suppose there there are there are three key things that need to be understood, and this is what the paper tries to do. The, the first is 
that the lion's share of what you might call the pluralism is what a philosopher would call epistemic pluralism. And what this means is epistemology is the study of belief and evidence and rationality even. I think a, a key, a key um, element of Rabbi Sachs's view uh, that you can trace right throughout many of his works and not merely the dignity of difference is that it's not possible for a human being to achieve rationality absent from a community and a language we are inherently embedded in a community and a community gives us the languages that we speak and the languages that we speak are used to frame our thoughts. So it's very difficult to, to prize away notions of epistemology, study of belief and rationality from our communal embeddedness. And I think what this leads to is the view that, wow, even though I've got very good reason to believe that Judaism is true, I can recognize that somebody born into a different community speaking a different language may be equally rational to believe otherwise. Now that's not a what radical- they, What they have is- What they have and their evidence and their- Now it's not that we could both be right because they're, in, they're incompatible, but we could both be equally rational. And I think that's, that's a major element of Rabbi Sachs's uh, pluralism. And I think it's very important because if we can recognize in one another, even as we continue to have our disagreements, that your opponent in a debate may be equally in good faith as you and equally reasonable and rational, but just has a different stream of evidence, a different language, a different approach, um, that, that, that can relieve a lot of the tension from debates and, 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 and instill a certain amount of respect and, you know, and-, and, uh, and, and Well, it, you know, it sounds so simple. It sounds so simple. Yes. But I think that, um, you know, certainly on the other side of the pond, or I should say the yeah. side of the pond you're on right now, yeah. um, that has not been true for political discourse. So no, not, not at all. Jonathan Haidt's Righteous Mind was really all about this. And, and although, you know, that book made a splash, yes. the, the unraveling of its lessons still haven't... No, it's, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Right. And I, I actually was, I think for me, the election results came out in the United States of the last yeah. presidential election on the same uh, in the same day. I heard about them at night on after Shabbat, let's say Shabbat, um, the night that I heard that Rabbi Sachs died, and there was something about that uh, that confluence of events that yeah. was so profound because I thought, well, if anyone's going to help us get through mm. the polarities that mm -hmm. have developed here on the political side, on the mm -hmm. human side, it's going to be a figure like Rabbi Sachs. Yes. And then he, and then he was no longer. Um, yes. And I think what, that, we, what we desperately need right now is people who are able to say, I stand for something, I believe in something, but I am able to respect people who disagree with me and enter into real meaningful conversation with them. Right. Uh, you know. And also to acknowledge that the, the truth that you pursue is deeply mm -hmm. valid and rational for you. Right. That's um, right. Even if it's not, uh, even if it's not my choice. So let's let me um, read yes. something to you from yeah. the mid section of your piece. Yeah. You say, as far as Rabbi Sachs was concerned, Jewish mm -hmm. identity, as that concept has been traditionally understood, yeah. manifestly assumes that one can derive an ought from an is. The yeah. fact that a person is born into the Jewish people entails the ought of commandment. 
And the yes. fact that Jew can be born into the obligations of a covenant entails that in some important sense, the essence of the Jew preceded her very existence. Yes. Tell us what you mean. Yes. And why you think that is important in understanding his religious pluralism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, with, with pleasure. I mean, I, I, th those are claims that I think uh, 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 are key claims Rabbi Sachs makes in, in the paper. And I think, you know, I, I, I hope he, he would appreciate this. Uh, you know, I, um, I, do, I do subject things he says to scrutiny, critical scrutiny sometimes, right? And, and, I, and, and there are things that could be criticized in, in, in um, what you just read. Uh, but uh, what, what survives my scrutiny and what I, what I think he, he would agree to is from what you've just read is, is the following, is that there is a view that um, Rabbi Sachs associates with the Enlightenment, actually. There's a view that, that can quickly descend into um, a kind of radical individualism. And what this radical individualism does is it conceives of each human being as completely isolated and autonomous from all others, right? So, so no, the notion that you could be born into a covenant is anathema to that because, you know, because that's you have total free agency, you're- That's right, that's right. You, you, you know, you are a completely abstract entity shorn of any pre-commitments. You get to decide who and what you are. Um, and, and Rabbi Sachs says that, that Judaism has a very different view. Judaism thinks that the situation of your birth, um, it doesn't determine things because we still have the freedom of choice, uh, but, but it, it's not inconsequential or insignificant. It shapes who you are. It also radically shapes what your obligations are. So if you are born into certain family situations, you may grow up with obligations that somebody else doesn't grow up with. For example, you have an obligation to look after your parents. I don't have that obligation, not to look after your parents. I have an obligation to look after my parents. And this is the, the, these, are, the, these are a function of the situation of our birth, but it's more radical than that, uh, Rabbi Sachs would suggest. It also can affect what counts as rational and reasonable for you might differ to what counts as rational and reasonable for me because of the situation of my birth. Not what's true or false. Truth and falsehood are objective notions. That's very, very important that we don't lose that. What's reasonable or rational? And, and I actually think that if you extend this observation to its rational conclusion, this is part of why Judaism isn't a proselytizing religion. It's not because we don't take our religion to be a very, very important truth, a sacred truth, but we just don't think that it would be reasonable for God to expect people born in radically different situations to come to see the world the way we do even though we see it truly, even though we're convinced that we see it truly. Um, you know, so, so anyway, that's one point. The second point of the paper is there is a deeper pluralism in what Rabbi Sachs says, and it's slightly harder to understand. Hmm. And it's the pluralism of um, well, it, it's based on this distinction between Torah and Chokhmah that you find in Rabbi Sachs's work. Uh, mm -hmm. consistently. And as I try to understand that doctrine of Rabbi Sachs, this, di this distinction between Torah and Chokhmah, what emerges from Rabbi Sachs's treatment of that distinction is that there are some deep and profound truths 
that can only be communicated in a given language. Mm -hmm. So let me give an example, right? Uh, I've just finished reading for the second time in my life, The Brothers Karamazov by, by Fyodor Dostoevsky, but I can only read it in English. Right. And that's a translation of the original. And I, therefore, I'm certain that I lost something. There's going to be something in the Russian. You know, we talk about something being lost in translation, right? Um, now, what Rabbi Sachs was open to, and I think this is part of, of where he confused people most with the first edition, but I think what Rabbi Sachs was open to was that, okay, think of Christianity, say. Think of it as a language, because it's a language that has, you know, there's many different cultural associations in Christianity, images in Christianity, concepts in Christianity, which are native to Christianity. Now, many of those, uh, many of the things that you might want to say as a Jew, you could translate into the, into the language of Christianity, and many things that the Christian might want to say may be translated into, into a Jewish idiom. There are likely to be things which are lost in translation. And what Rabbi Sachs was open to was that even if Christianity is committed to objective falsehoods, according to us, it's objectively false that Jesus was the Messiah. It's objectively false that he was an incarnation. Objectively false. Nonetheless, it may be that, that all of those falsehoods comprise a language such that when you try to translate that language into the language of Judaism, all you get are the falsehoods. Yeah, there may be something true left over that could only be stated in that language, right? There may be insights or... or, or um... I, think, I, think, I think, Sam, it might be easier to understand, not with the use of another religion, but with the yeah. use of another society. So yes, very good. There, there are words that are, there are German words that capture... Good emotions and situations that we don't have words for in America. Uh, uh, um, and I, I actually, I've, I think I've tried, I think I've located the two sentences which best describe what you're talking about. Thank you. But you'll, you'll tell me if this is yeah, true. Yeah, sure, sure, please. Um, we should recognize that God has situated different people in very different epistemic situations. Yeah. Even if there's only one truth, by giving each person different epistemic roots, placing them in different communities, we each have very different access to the facts. Yeah. So it's really, as I understand what you wrote, it's really a question to the access to the facts. That's right. That's right. Um, and that's that's right. Which where, a language can give you. Which a language can give you. And therefore, you're born, when you're born into community, just yeah. like if I'm born into a Spanish-speaking universe. Yes. Versus a German universe versus, versus yes. a French universe. There's something about that very birthing process. I yes. am, I have inherited something just by virtue of being born, Absolutely. not necessarily of owning it myself. Absolutely. And, and it can lead to the fact that as a Spanish speaker, you may be aware of elements of reality that we English speakers are blind to. Right. You know, that's a because possibility. You have, you have words for things. I mean, I think we all have this experience when we read. And we're reading something very masterful. I mean, you you just finished a, yes. you know, the second reading of some, and you and sometimes you say, "I didn't really have a language to articulate that until I read this." Um, and and we can keep we can keep accumulating that throughout a lifetime when Absolutely. we're sensitive to the nuances 
And and so I guess I guess I, I want to ask you before we conclude mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, about reactions to this piece because you're yeah. talking about something that is philosophically very complex. Yes. You know, it's no surprise that people didn't understand. Yes, it's a very very difficult point. In the dignity of difference, and mm -hmm. that and and perhaps and this conversation has certainly illuminated for me mm. why he needed to write a second edition. Yeah. Yeah. To say this isn't this isn't a foregone conclusion for many people, mm -hmm. um, and particularly people. I'll just say this is an American as opposed to European. Um, Europeans who speak multiple languages, yeah. um, those who speak multiple languages, may appreciate in a much more profound way that yeah. that there are truths that are accessed by virtue of language. Yes, we'll, that's we'll it. Put on the side for a second. That's that it. Someone who lives in an, in a in a, uh, in a in a country which is vast and in a language which dominates, we don't have access to the subtleties of that kind of language. And that is, if it's true for language, how much more so is it true for for faith? For whole religions, for whole yes, because they they are entire. A religion is an entire culture, really. Right. And and right. I think and I think what you know. So I think. What Rabbi Sachs is saying to to take my two to put the two points back together, and there's a, a, a very small third point that the paper makes. But to put the, the two main points back together is one, even even while recognizing and believing with perfect faith that we have been gifted revelation of of a hundred percent reliability and accuracy, and therefore we have a true religion. We can walk we can walk around with with a deep faith that that's the case. One. We can recognize that people who don't share our faith are not irrational for so mm -hmm. doing. That's an important recognition in and of itself. Two, we can recognize that even though we believe the truth and only the truth, no human language is capable of encompassing the whole truth. So even though Christianity, Islam, Sikhism may be false on the things that really matter to us, that doesn't rule out the possibility that they're sensitive to certain truths that only their language is able to express. And to have the, the humility to be able to say that, uh, even whilst what makes Rabbi Sachs's pluralism so much more attractive and impressive than an easy kind of postmodernism is that it's in the face of his theological conservatism that he's still able to be that mm. humble. Mm. Right? Uh, um, but the third do element is... Do you think, Sam, it's about humility or do you think it's about intellectual honesty? Well, I actually think you, you, it's very difficult to be intellectually honest until you've accomplished intellectual humility. Mm. I think the two, you know, but yeah. I, appreciate, I appreciate the point. The, the, the third element of the paper is it's kind of a, an afterthought, which is if Rabbi Sachs was so pluralistic about other religions to the extent that I allowed that he was, why doesn't he say the same thing about Reform Judaism and Conservative Judaism? Let mm. them be their own communities and then say, you know, they're also... And, I won't steal the punchline from the book too too much, but but it, it the, the the deep insight here is that Rabbi Sachs was deeply deeply committed to the Jewish people remaining in the face of all of our differences one people. Right. It's because we're one people that the debates between orthodoxy, reform, and conservatism are kind of intra linguistic. Right. right. And and you you're in, in in other words, if you're born into Judaism. Well, for Rabbi Sachs, perhaps mm -hmm. you're born into orthodoxy, right? In other words, and and that that's a whole other that's a whole other podcast, right? It was, just, no. you know, yeah. Well, that's what that's what my book's about. <laughs> well, <laughs> we it's good that you said that because I wanted to ask you. It's good, a good plug, right? A shameless yeah, plug. Yeah. 
Um, you've got a new book. In fact, yeah. I have it and you don't have it yet. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so uh, just by virtue of, uh, you know, of getting a, an advanced copy, um, tell us, tell us uh, in our remaining moments, yeah, so what the book, what the book, is, what the book's title is, who's the publisher, how can we get it when it's coming out? <laughs> Well, it's it's a Magid Press book in association with Yeshiva University Press. So you're 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 uh, you're We're covered on both fronts. My yeah, that's right. Employer. That's, yeah, that's right. Your publisher and your employer. Um, and it's called the Guide for the Jewish Undecided. Uh, a philosopher makes the case for Orthodox Judaism. But the reason it's relevant is that philosophically, it's an extension of the same project of this paper, because what it says is, well, okay. Um, what makes things rational, what makes things reasonable depends upon the linguistic and cultural setting in which you find yourself. But I say, well, if that's true, what happens if you do find yourself in a Jewish cultural setting? And, and I think Rabbi Sachs would say that people born into a Jewish cultural setting, it doesn't even matter if they're Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, if they, if they have a proud Jewish identity, there are very compelling arguments according to which it's overwhelmingly rational and reasonable for such a person to embrace full-heartedly commitment to to jewish observance mm. um, to religious jewish observance and that that's that's what the book's about it's extending the project in that direction yeah and it sounds like in some way um sam that this is the project of life for you uh right that this that's is right something that you've been uh, working out um, and had the gift of having Rabbi Sachs as a mentor yeah. in, that, yeah. um, in, that, in that journey. Uh, but you still haven't told us when the books are coming out. Sure. Well, I'm not exactly sure. I think in a couple, I think it will certainly be, be out in a couple of months. You know, they're, 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 it's, it's, it's on, the, on the precipice of going to, going to print. So do look out on maybe even by the time this podcast is up, it will be it will be out. out. Okay. Well, um, my husband and I are, are fighting over who gets to read it first. <laughs> uh, I look forward to being in touch when when uh, when we've read it. Um, for our listeners, this is the Tradition Online podcast. Uh, you can access it at traditiononline.org. We're talking with Sam Liebens about his tradition article in the spring of 2022. It's called One God, One Truth, Many Languages, Rabbi Sachs, Rabbi Sachs's Pluralism Reexamined. Um, I'm going to say that again, just so that it, it gets a good cut. Um, we're here with uh, Professor Sam Liebens discussing Traditions Spring 2022 essay, One God, One Truth, Many Languages, Rabbi Sachs's Pluralism Reexamined. Sam Liebens, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you.